I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. And if you'd like to follow along uh, with handouts, uh, there is a handout for you in your bulletin. It's a little bit longer than normal, so don't get nervous. That handout is designed to, uh, to guide us not only in the morning service, but then again in the evening service. I plan on covering the first two pages of that handout this morning and uh, verses 1 through 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and then bring it back this evening uh, at 5 o'clock, and we'll cover verses 7 through 13, uh, which uh, will round out Paul's discussion and, and really the final two pages then in that handout as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul begins to answer questions from the Corinthians about meat offered to idols. This was a controversial subject for the Corinthians. There was some dispute among the believers in the churches there in Corinth regarding whether or not believers had the freedom to eat meat that had been formally sacrificed to an idol. In some cases, this meat would be then, after sacrificed, sold in a marketplace, and it was cheaper. And so many of the Corinthian believers began asking questions about this. Now, this is not the first time in 1 Corinthians that Paul answers questions. If you look in your Bible at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, you see now concerning. And then 7 in verse 25, you see now concerning. And then chapter 8 in verse 1, you see the exact same phrase, now concerning food which has been offered to idols. It seems that the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter, and in that letter, they asked two specific questions about meat offered to idols. They first asked if idol meat was wrong. Is it wrong in and of itself? Is idol meat inherently evil? And then the second question they asked was, can we eat it? Can we eat idol meat? And so Paul's answer here comes in a very interesting way. Uh, Paul's answer to their question is quite complex. Um, he asks this question, and the, Corinth, or the Corinthians ask a question, and I think that they get more than what they bargained for. Paul gives them three chapters full of principles to think about. Have you ever asked a simple question before only to get a complex answer? I remember when I was a teenage boy in high school, I went up to my father one day and I asked him if I could use the family car, sports car, that time, to take my girlfriend out on a date. Simple question, right? Well, my father looked at me and he said, Brent, why don't you have a seat? <laughs> and so after uh, my sitting down, my father began to work me through a series of points about driving the car. He says, well, this is not the truck. You know, there's this like power band that you can hit in the car. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's exactly why I want the car. <laughs> so he says, there's this power band. So you got to drive. You know, I'm kind of shaking my head a little bit. You got to drive carefully. Yes, of course. Yes. And he says, and if you're going to use the car, you need to put gas in the car and you need to wash the car and you need to not only drive well, you need to drive defensively because there's all kinds of crazy people on the road. He, he went through this long spiel about driving the car. He then changed the discussion about halfway through. I mean, I was just wondering, am I going to get the car or not? 
And so then he started talking about how to treat young women in the car. Okay, so he goes through this long spiel, and all along the way, I'm just thinking, am I going to get the car or not? Simple question. My dad gave me many things to think about. Here the Corinthians asked Paul, is idol meat wrong? Can we eat idol meat? And Paul lays out six important principles for the Corinthians to consider before they ever eat idol meat. And so what I would like to do over the course of the next several sermons is list out these principles for you. I believe that these principles can act a little bit like a filter to give us wisdom in, why, in choices that we have to make as well regarding controversial decisions. I always look at these six principles as different strands in a filter that will allow the good to go through, but keep the bad from getting through. Perhaps you've seen a water filter, and I'm not an expert of water filters, but some of these are built with uh, different layers of semi-permeable material upon each other. You weave them together. And so each principle is like a strand in the filter that will help us make wise decisions in our own matters. As I said before, eating meat offered to idols was a controversial thing for the Corinthians. Uh, For us, perhaps not as much so, but we have our own set of controversial questions that we should work through. Things like, what entertainment choices can and can I not make as a New Testament follower of Jesus Christ? Or how should I dress? I mean, does the Bible say anything about that? Or different worship preferences. Some people like certain styles of worship, others other styles of worship. Does the Bible have anything to say about worship or worship music? Does the Bible address questions like what can a Christian eat and drink? I think that sometimes the Bible comes right out and just says, thou shalt not do this or you should do this. Other times, what the scriptures do is they lay out guiding principles that we then have to take and apply in our life to important decisions. So this morning, I want to look at the first principle, the first principle of Christian liberty found in the text, is, and that is the principle of love. If I were stating this principle in the form of a statement, In one sentence, I would say in chapter 8, Paul is getting the Corinthians and ourselves to come to this point where we would say, I must love others even when I know I'm right. I must love others, especially other followers of Christ, even when I know I'm right. And so Paul emphasizes love in chapter 8, and he does this by discussing the limits And the values of knowledge, that's what we'll cover this morning in verses 1 through 6. And then he he gives a very practical discussion about what the Corinthians were facing in verses 7 through 13. Let's look in our Bibles. I want to read through 1 Corinthians 8. If you don't have a Bible, you can see it on the screen there in front of you. It says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known 
by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Verse 7. However, not all of us possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. (coughs) Verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple— Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. (coughs) Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother to stumble. If you were following along in the slides that I gave you, you may have noticed that there's a key word that's repeated all throughout here. It's found often in verses 1 through 6, and you can see it underlined in verses 7 through 13 here several times as well. Paul is discussing knowledge in this passage or our own understanding of some of these Christian liberty issues. And so in this extended theological discussion, uh, Paul first states that knowledge alone is not a sufficient basis for Christian liberty. Knowledge alone is not a sufficient basis for Christian liberty. In order to understand verses 1 through 3, let me just ask a few questions uh, for you to consider. First of all, the the, the first question in verse 1 I think that's important to consider is, what knowledge is Paul talking about? Or what does the word mean, especially in the Corinthian setting? I mean, what's going on here? And I want to suggest that the first two phrases in verse 1 help us define that. It says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. It seems best Like many times in the book, in verse 1, after the now concerning statement and the topic marker now concerning food offered to idols, to put a colon and then to put quotation marks after it again. For some of the Corinthians were, some of the Corinthian believers were saying, Paul, all of us possess a certain type of knowledge. Then if we look a little bit later on down in verse 4, we find out what knowledge they're talking about. They were claiming to know things like this. Paul, all of us in the Corinthian church know that idols are nothing. Idols are just, you know, blocks of wood or chunks of like, you know, whatever, stone or marble that someone has fashioned into the shape of some 
inanimate object. You know, so it's a little piece of wood that they carve to look like a rat or a duck or something. But Paul, all of us know that idols are actually nothing. They're just blocks of wood. And they were claiming to know that idol meat was actually nothing as well. You know, Paul, it's just meat. It's just protein, animal protein, with a little bit of fat maybe mixed in there if it's good. But it's just meat, Paul. There's nothing more to it than the fact it's just meat. And so they were claiming to know that idols are nothing and that meat itself was just meat. And so then they were also claiming that they would have the freedom to go about and eat the meat which had been formerly associated with idolatry. Now what I want to do is I want to take you on a little bit of a side to show you why that knowledge is very ironic. Okay? Now to do this, what I'd like to do is I'd like to, to first tell you that there are a few major passages on Christian liberty found in your New Testament. Now you come back tonight and I'm actually going to define Christian liberty for you. But there are four major passages on Christian liberty found in your Bibles. If you want to study this topic out for yourself, there are four texts you really need to start with. You could go to the book of Galatians, especially Galatians chapters 5 and 6, to see how Paul dealt with some of these controversial decisions and choices in some of the churches in Galatia. And uh, one of the things I want to do is I want to tell you when these letters are written as well. And I'll, I'll give you a reason for that in just a moment. So the book of Galatians, I believe, is written just before the Jerusalem Council in about 49 or 50 AD. And there Paul gives instructions about matters of liberty. The second major passage is Acts chapter 15, which is a chapter that captures the historic event of the Jerusalem Council. Again, I would suggest that this event occurs in 49 or 50 AD or so. That's the second major passage on liberty. The third is 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10. So if you study and know our, our chapters that we're looking at, you will have a good understanding of one of the most important passages regarding liberty in the Bible. And again, giving you the date on this, we had suggested in the introduction that this book was written in about 55 or 56 AD. And then there's one other passage that you would need to study in your New Testament, and that is Romans 14 and 15. In Romans 14 and 15, you've got a stronger believer and a weaker believer there as well, like we'll see in our text, although there's some significant differences that I'll talk to you about tonight. But that is another important text. Romans is written just after 2 Corinthians, I believe, in about 57 AD. So you got that four major passages. Now, what I'd like to do is look at one of them with you. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. I'm going to go on a two-minute aside here that I think you will see its relevance for our discussion uh, if you follow along with me in your Bible. Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. Look in your Bibles with me at verse 1. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, uh, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch here, so they came from Judea, perhaps Jerusalem, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the, the custom of Moses, 
You cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. <clears throat> Let me just overview this Jerusalem council with you for, for a brief minute here. First, there is a large dispute in Antioch between Paul and Barnabas and some who had come from Jerusalem about whether or not circumcision was necessary for salvation. This leads in verse 5 to um, uh, them going down to Jerusalem and then notice in verse 5 that some Pharisaic believers were adding to salvation. Verse 5, but some believers... These are followers of Jesus Christ. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses or and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So some believers, Pharisaic believers in Jerusalem were claiming uh, that they were agreeing with these people who had come up to Antioch and were saying, you know what, you need to be circumcised and you need to keep the law of Moses if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. This leads Peter, and we won't read it, Peter to make a confession in verse 7 where he basically, uh, he, he, he describes what was going on in his ministry among the Gentiles. He says, the Holy Spirit has been given to Gentiles too and there's no difference between Jews and Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas also are at the church council in Jerusalem and they testify and they give a report that God was doing wonders and miracles among the Gentiles in the, the provinces of Galatia. That leads another man to make a statement. James, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem enters the scene. And I want you to look in your Bibles with me at verses 19 through 21 to see what James says about this dispute. Verse 19, James says, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, could be translated idol meat, and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. I mean, what James basically declares here is that we should invite or ask Gentile believers in all of these cities to abstain from four necessary practices that may be an offense to Jewish people in these cities, okay? And the four things they capture in a letter, and in verses 28 and 29, the, the, church, the church of Jerusalem, led by the apostles and the elders, writes a letter asking Gentile believers to refrain from four things so as not to offend Jewish people, to unnecessarily offend them. The council decides that they do not have to be circumcised, but, but they, uh, they ask them to abstain from four things. The four things are refrain from meat offered to idols. Don't eat blood. Don't eat things that were strangled and stay away from immorality or fornication. Okay, so that was the decision 
in 49 or 50 AD. And the first thing the council asked believers to refrain from was what? Eating meat which had been offered to idols. Okay, Um, so that takes place in 49 or 50 AD. When is 1 Corinthians written? Okay, sometimes I give the answer to my quizzes right behind me on the When is it written? It's written in 55 or 56. So what this means is it's only been five or six years since the council said, don't eat things offered to idols because you don't want to unnecessarily offend Jewish people. And now the Corinthians were claiming to know better. Paul, all of us have knowledge. And what we know, Paul, is that idols are nothing, Idols are nothing, meats is nothing, and we can eat the meat. That's the knowledge we're talking about. But that leads Paul to a second question that he answers. Go back to our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 3. In verses 1, 1, at the end of that verse, he then answers the question, what does knowledge do? Paul describes the knowledge of the Corinthians in this way. Look at the end of verse 1. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. One of the main criticisms that Paul had regarding their knowledge is that it inflated the believer's ego instead of helping anyone else out. This knowledge puffs up. Like what two commentators said about this part of the verse, they said this, Paul associates both knowledge and love with processes that cause something to increase in size. Whereas knowledge is leading those in the know to, listen to this, to expand through inflation with hot air. Like that. Knowledge is causing people to expand through inflation with hot air. Love leads others to increase in something more substantial akin to the growth of a solidly constructed building. See, men and women, if we're not easy, or if we're not careful, it'll be easy for us to grow inflated of our own opinions in matters of Christian liberty, to become inflated or arrogant about our own spiritual knowledge. I like to use the analogy of a marshmallow. We become like a marshmallow puffed up. But what happens often is that when we become so convinced and confident in our own opinion of these controversial choices, I find God doing something like this, squishing us down and squeezing us out and throwing some new factor into the decision or the debate that we had never seen before. And so what Paul is doing in verses 1 through 3, if I could just clearly tell you, he's telling the Corinthians, don't be too confident in your own knowledge or opinion of this situation. This is a very important position for Paul, and he's basically showing them that even if God does enable you to have some level or of understanding or knowledge on the topic, you still need to hold it in love. For men and women, if, if the position, if our position is not held in love, it is not the right position. Like, even if you nailed it biblically, I know what we should do in this decision. Even if we nail it, but we don't hold it in love, 
It's not the right position. It's a very important idea for Paul because Paul is going to talk about love edifying here. And the twin themes of love and building or edifying are, are themes that he will return to throughout the letter. As a matter of fact, I was reading through the book recently, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul has a lot to say about love there. You know that, right? The love chapter. Okay, he actually mentions the word love nine times in 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 14, right after it, guess what word he mentions frequently? Edify, builds. Seven times in chapter 14, in the beginning of that chapter, he talks about building others, edifying others. And so what Paul is showing us in chapter 8 here is that uh, love and edification are the most basic concerns, or should be some of our most basic concerns in matters of liberty. Loving someone else in difficult choices will build them. But knowledge builds and bloats, but it's only ourselves. So that leads to a third question, and the third question I would summarize in verses 2 and 3. What are the problems with knowledge? I think Paul lists two particular problems in verses 2 and 3. The first problem is found in verse 2, and Paul is saying, one of the problems I have with knowledge or your own opinion of the situation is knowledge is only partial. It's incomplete. Your knowledge of the situation is incomplete. Look at verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. I mean, one of the direct results of the fall in the garden was the complete and utter depravity of humanity. And one of the consequences of that was that this depravity would extend to all parts of people, including our intellect or our mind. So while humans reflect the image of God in our ability to think, none of us has or will attain perfect intellects, right? There's no perfect intellect. What we know in the Bible, of course, is that uh, when we are saved in sanctification, God is gradually beginning to change us. And he's giving us, through the Holy Spirit, new insights into his will, his perfect will, and into his word. I think that responding to what God is doing in our life in sanctification should lead us to really two conclusions or two responses. First, we should praise God and thank him that he's beginning to show us things that we could never see left to ourselves in the word of God. But it should also cause us to respond with caution right? Caution about our own understanding of situations or our own understanding of his perfect will. For men and women, sometimes our knowledge can be wrong. And just the time we think that we've got all of these difficult issues figured out, there's a new situation that occurs and it throws everything off. That's what Paul means in verse 2 when you look in your Bible and he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Consequently, in, in, in a piece of application here, let me just 
challenge you to be willing to realign or reassign your opinions or change your opinions when they go against what the scriptures say. I've got two friends who wrote a book recently, uh, Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley, wrote a book on the conscience. And uh, in the book, they give an illustration of a bathroom scale. So I'd like to use their illustration for a moment. This bathroom scale in their book is five pounds off. It always reads five pounds off. Okay, so it says that you weigh 110 pounds, but the reality is you weigh 115. Okay, get it? Always five pounds off. Let me ask you, which measurement is better? 110 or 115? You say, well, it's always the smaller one of the two, unless you're a football player, and it's always the bigger. Okay. Always the smaller. Well, which one is true? Okay, in that scenario, I said, it, it reads 110, but you actually weigh 115. The right measurement is 115. Well, what are you supposed to do with a scale that always reads five pounds off? What do you got to do? In the book, they say you have to calibrate it. Fancy word. You need to realign it. Okay, for those of you who still don't get it, you have to use that little wheel at the bottom of the scale. You got to turn it, turn it so that it's accurate, right? It's reading accurate. Okay, sometimes my opinion, as much as I think I might know the Bible and know God's word and know these principles and have committed sections of scripture to even to memory, and I've been meditating upon them for years, sometimes my thinking can be off. And I must be willing, if someone comes along and shows me from the Bible a set of principles or passages from scripture that contradict my thinking on the matter, I must be willing to calibrate my conscience and my opinions and realign them with the scriptures. None of us are right on every controversial subject. And we should admit that. We should remember that. So one of the problems that Paul has with knowledge is it's only partial. The second problem is verse three. Knowledge doesn't count for much anyway. Look at verse three. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Verse 3 gives another problem with a selfish insistence on our own knowledge in matters of liberty. And what I want to point out is here the word knowledge is in a passive form talking about the type of person that God decides to know. So in verse 3, Paul's doing something like this. He says, you want to talk about a type of knowledge that's important? Let's talk about the man or woman that God decides to know. God knows those who evidence love in the midst of decisions regarding Christian liberty. If you love your brother, God knows you. So I think he's saying something like this. Knowledge itself doesn't count for much. Knowledge alone is not a sufficient basis for choices and controversial issues. This leads us to the second movement of Paul in this text in verses 4 through 6. And we'll work quickly through these verses as well. 
in this extended theological discussion that Paul is having about knowledge. The next thing that he declares is that knowing and pleasing God are our life's purposes, main purposes. Knowing and pleasing God are our life's purposes. Look at verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or in earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Okay, so in verses four through six, Paul uh, organizes all of his material very simply around two points, okay? In verse four, I believe that Paul lists out two Corinthian slogans again. These are things the Corinthians were saying. Slogan number one in verse four is, there is nothing to an idol. This is what the Corinthians were saying, verse four. We know that there's nothing to an idol. (coughs) And the second slogan is, Paul, we all know that there's only one God. Okay, so in verse four, he's listing their slogans. Verses five and six, he responds to their slogans so that his first answer comes in verse five is to their first slogan. They say there is nothing to an idol. And Paul's response is to agree, but to give a simple adjustment to it. You're right about the fact that idols are just blocks of wood and stuff. There's no God in it. However, what you need to know, Corinthians, is that there are a multitude of many, there are many alleged gods and lords in this world. I mean, the Corinthians were living in a day and a time when when unbelievers thought that the world was ruled by a whole host of different gods and lords. There's a God for the sun, there's a God for the rain, there's a God for healing. And all these gods and lords. And so Paul says, yes, it's true. There is nothing to an idol. But what you need to know is that there are many supposed gods and lords in this world. So he gives a simple adjustment to their slogan. The second slogan, he fully agrees with and then expands upon. So the Corinthians say, there is only one God, end quote. And Paul says, yes, right. You nailed it. There is only one God. But let me talk to you a little bit more about why the fact that there is only one God matters in your debate about Christian liberty. And so what I'd like for you to do with me is I would like for you to look with me at verse 6. And I want to especially emphasize what's going on in this text by simply paying attention to four Prepositions. You say, I can't even remember what a preposition is. Again, we uh, underlined it and put it on the, the slide in front of you. Okay, so if you pay attention to these four prepositions, I think you can get Paul's main point in this text. Look at verse 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. 
I think what Paul is, is basically doing here is, with these prepositions is he's pointing out the different facts about God the Father in creation and Jesus Christ as well. So you, you look at the first one, he says, there is one God the Father from whom are the all things. I think that one speaks of God's act in creation. God, at one point in time, created the all things. He's the creator. Okay, so we got that one. Next preposition he goes to that I'd like to go to, I'd like to skip the second one for a moment and go to the third one. He says, there is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are the all things and through whom we exist. Okay, with the second preposition, he keeps the object as the same. At the beginning, it was, there's one God from whom are all things. And now all things are coming through Jesus Christ. I think that phrase talks about the fact that Jesus Christ himself was also active in the creation of the all things, in the creation of the world. And so far in this text, God is describing, or Paul is describing, the work of God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son in creation. He moves along to the final preposition. You can see at the very end of the verse, and through whom we exist. So in this phrase, he's, he's basically changing the object now from the all things to we, Paul and the Corinthian believers. And he's saying now, he's not talking about Jesus as a creator, but Jesus as a redeemer, as a redeemer of believers. We exist as New Testament believers because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the agent from God, through whom our redemption is achieved. So as we've been going through, you see all of these prepositions and you see the rule of God, this loaded theological section. But to me, the whole key of this section is right in the middle of the verse. And it's the phrase, and for whom we exist. Here he's saying there's one God, the Father, and for whom we exist. I think what's going on in this passage is he is basically describing the work of Christ and God, not only in creation, the creating of the all things, but in redemption, in our salvation. And what he is suggesting is now as New Testament believers of Jesus, in Jesus Christ, there is one person for whom you exist. And it's the one God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first two prepositions speak of all things as created beings. The second two here describe Christians as new creations. I think Paul's point with this phrase would be to emphasize something like this. I, I think he's right at the beginning... He's saying that our thinking about liberties and freedoms should begin and end with God. It's very interesting to me that later on in this chapter, at the very end of the book, Paul says, whether you eat the meat or not, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Reminding the Corinthians of one of the most important principles of Christian liberty, and that is that our lives are to be lived solely for God. 
Yet if we're honest, we often are distracted by our own multitudes of idols. At times in our lives, we are diffused. Our intentions are diffused. We follow after our own things. Murray Harris, a commentator, said it this way. He said, we, as believers in Jesus, suffer from a multiplicity of conflicting directions rather than a single ultimate concern focused on God. In other words, we are fragmented, men and women. We are fragmented by many lesser things. And even our approach in liberty issues sometimes comes with only our own interests in mind. Instead, at the beginning of this text, Paul reminds us that we must keep God's glory as our primary concern throughout life. In matters of Christian liberty, we are oftentimes bent on self-pleasing or others-pleasing. But Paul says, you must be God-pleasing in the choices that you make. So let me ask you a few questions as we close. Do you believe that there is one true God? And all God's people said, what to that? Yes. Okay, not a trick question. Yes, I believe there's one true God. Do you think that the one true God has an opinion of how you function on a day-to-day basis, including areas of Christian liberty? Do you think he has an opinion? All God's people said, yes, good. You're passing the test so far. One last question. Have you asked the one true God his opinion of what you do and the choices you make in matters of liberty? You don't need to answer that one out loud. You see, we must never come to God with closed fists, demanding my own rights, my freedom, my thoughts in the subject. God, you can do anything, but you can't have this. That's my choice. This is like my style here, God. We can't come to God with closed fists in Christian liberty. Instead, we must come to him with open hands and say, God, what do you want? Whatever you want. However you want me to live my life. God, these six principles Pastor Brent's going to go through and work through in the next several weeks. If you show me, if you show me from the Bible that my practice in some area is off, God, I just gladly offer it back to you. Because we exist now, not only as created beings, but as a new creation to glorify the God for whom we exist. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege of working through this text of Scripture as an introduction to our study. Lord, I know that as we continue to go through these chapters, our own controversial subjects will be brought to light. Some of the decisions that we make, Lord, will be questioned. And I pray, dear Father, that we would, at a foundational level, be willing to do whatever you have for us. 
Lord, we are followers of yours through Jesus Christ. You created us. You redeemed us. And may we be willing, Lord, to to do whatever you would ask, wherever you would draw the line in our own practice, our own standards, as we would take them from Scripture, I pray that we'd be willing to follow. And Father, I'd pray that we would all understand that we exist solely for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.